and here we go again. I'm Jason, it's Filmography Club, and we're back on some actual filmography shit this time around, talking about the films of Jeremy Saunier, that's writer-director of Blue Ruin, and this episode's subject, Green Room. Green Room got a limited release in 2015, which is why maybe you haven't heard of it. And if this one got by you, please go seek it out before listening to this episode because Filmography Club is not a spoiler-free zone. In fact, we get into big old spoilers almost immediately here, so fair warning. Green Room is a film that defies genre, and look, I know a lot of people say that about movies when they want to buff them up, but y'all, it's true about this one. It's got survival horror elements, it's got elements of a thriller in its DNA, it's got 70s-era grindhouse stuff going on, and it somehow manages to find the time to be genuinely funny every now and then, too. Today's guest is Ted Ringeisen. Ted's a friend of the show. He was my guest on the Jaws episode, if you remember. He's an L.A.-based filmmaker and cinematographer and a soon-to-be podcaster. He's launching a podcast next week. This has been recorded uh, September 6th, 2020, for the record. And it's going to be called Needs to be Seen. That's spelled uh, like seen, you know, like uh, S-C-E-N-E. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think you'll agree that we had a good conversation. So now I present my talk with Ted Ringeisen about Jeremy Saunier's ultra-intense white-knuckle horror thriller 2015's Green Room. All right, I'm uh, here with Ted Ringeisen. Ted, how you doing, man? Good to see you. You too, Jason. How you been? I've been I've been doing okay. Not bad. We're here to talk about Green Room today, Jeremy Saunier's uh, third movie, yeah. technically, but the second one that we're doing episodes on. The feel good movie of 2015. Holy shit! So I'm sure I'm going to talk about this in the intro that I'll I will have recorded by the time people hear this. But I'm going to take a moment to reiterate: if you've got anxiety right now due to the current state of the world. This is not the movie for you right now. Yeah. This is not a feel-good movie. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. This is a very uh, gritty, uh, edge-of-your-seat, white-knuckle, I don't know what you can call it, yeah. thriller, horror, yeah. survival I, horror. Like a, uh, It's almost like a high con- one of those like 90s high-concept films. It's like the, a situation where all these people are trapped in a green room and they got to try to figure out a way to get out, you know, like it's like, a bomb is on a bus and it goes 50 miles an hour. You know, like it's just one of those sort of high concept movies, but man, is it sinister. I feel like, cause all day today I've been in kind of like, ugh, like a funk. And I wonder, I wonder if, because I watched it last night and it had been about two years and I do, I mean like this is a, in terms of like just a, a really well-made intense movie. Green Room is certainly that, but man, it's a tough one. <laughs> like it's brutally violent. It really is. And the violence comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's not really accompanied by dramatic stabs of music. It's just sort of matter of factly presented. And you're like, holy shit, that was one of my favorite characters. And I guess he's yeah. dead now. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like it's, um, it almost reminds me of the way that, uh, and I'm blanking on the director's name, but it's the guy that did Bone Tomahawk and. Um, yeah. Brawl uh, and Cellbot. Yeah, Dragged Across Concrete. and uh, Yeah, I have, I've only seen Bone Tomahawk out of those. And uh, Great holy movie. shit. I'm, yeah, that's another movie that'll make... That movie made my jaw hit the fucking... Floor. Yeah, that scene. It's it's that scene and in that movie. Everybody but, knows what scene it is, you know. And, but that the way that that guy... Uh, what the, Zoller or Zoller, S. Craig Zoller, I think the director's name might be. It might be messing up his last name. Uh, really good writer and filmmaker, but like the way that he... 
the way that violence is portrayed in his movies, like his movies are very like sort of Tarantino-esque with their dialogue and like, uh, uh, like the story, like the sort of way that he tells his story and grindhousey in a way, but like, uh, whereas Tarantino's violence is very like, sometimes it's very like cartoony and like bright and colorful, you know, like with like Jeremy Saulnier with Green Room and most of his movies, like the violence is just so like, wow. I mean, it, it's like a gut punch, you know, like in, in Green Room in particular with like, I mean, there's things that happen to like your main character that you're like, that's not supposed to happen to your main, your main character's wrist isn't supposed to be cut off, you know, like, and I mean, yeah. Oh, God. Um, like, whoo, man. It, I mean, like the violence just makes you, and, th- and like, I can watch zombies heads getting blown up, and, but when it's like surgical stuff, like it is in this movie where it's like just presented in such a way where it's like, yeah, this is what happens when someone does this to your wrist with a machete, you know, like it's, whew, man, it, it really just sends vomit into your mouth. Let's set it up. This is like you said, it's a hot concept movie. It's easily explainable. So let's, yeah. let's do that. A hardcore band on the road, trapped in a green room in the middle of, they're in a compound that's in the middle of the woods in the Pacific yeah. Northwest. Yeah. So like another big cancels on them. And then the guy that was supposed to set them up with that gig is like, I got another one for you. These guys, what does he say? Like leather and boots or something like that, or some reference about them being skinheads. So they're surrounded by 50, 60, 70 uh, skinheads that are trying to kill them. And it's Jeremy Saulnier considers this to be a war movie, or at least that's what he was thinking in his head. Yeah. When when he wrote it, Uh, watching it, I, I kept going back and forth like, okay, this is a thriller. No, it's psychological. Or, or, or survival horror. Yeah. But uh, he himself said that when he wrote it, he was thinking more in terms of like a, a war movie, which is one of the reasons why he picked the skinheads to be the bad guys, because they are sort of inherently quasi-militaristic with a hierarchy. Sure. It's safe to assume that these guys know how to use their weapons, know how to use guns. Yeah. And there's the whole red lace thing, which yeah. I'm sure we'll get into. But if, if you're not right. part of that world, and, and why would you be? Right. Skinheads, the racist kind anyway, tend to wear a white laces on their boots laced in a very particular way. And if you've killed, if you've proven that you'll draw blood for the cause, you earn your red laces, which that comes into play in the, in the that movie. That comes into play quite a bit, more than I remember in the movie. And it's, it's done in such a way where it doesn't, it's a lot of visual storytelling, which I'm a huge fan of. And I mean, it kind of just, it doesn't, it's like, I mean, they say red laces a few times. You don't really know what that is. And then they just have like one shot of like, all these guys come up and it's just shot at like foot level, like on the ground and you see all the red laces and you're like, okay, I get the idea of like what these guys are without them, you know, having like a scene of exposition where they're just talking about like, do you mean the men that come, you know, or whatever, like some. Sure. A lesser filmmaker would have given you some exposition and just explained it to you. But, but Jeremy doesn't really Jeremy because we're pals. Yeah. We're all, we're all Jeremy Sonia. doesn't really, uh, he doesn't spoon feed you this stuff. He just expects you to be bright enough to catch on. Yeah. I have to say there were a couple of moments. I didn't really understand the plot or at least what motivated the original murder until the second viewing. Yeah. When I watched it again, I was like, Oh, okay. These two. Oh, yeah. Because I guess the guy, what is his name? Worm? I, yeah, I think the murderer. It's that, that guy, that actor. And another thing about this movie, the, the casting is so, it's not like 
hey, that's the movie scary guy. Like that guy that they got looks like someone that we may have met in Nashville one time or like seen at like, you know, like that guy is just so terrifying. And he has like two lines of dialogue. And it's just, so I, frightening when he gets in that guy's face and he says, what's the name of that song you guys played? Yeah, that song. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's so scary. And I mean, like, he's not like talking and like a gruff voice. It's just like a, this very soft spoken just absolutely fucking terrifying. And like all the other casting too, like a couple of familiar faces, actually a lot, but I mean, it's just like, man, like the, the main characters, like the band, Tiger, like who is that guy, you know, like the lead singer in the band, like that guy is so good. And he looks like, like they're like, you know, like a punk hard band, but they don't look like movie punk hard bands. They look like, I can smell the BO on your t-shirt and that, that hair dye looks like his hair has been dyed for months, you know, and it's like a faded green. Like they really just all the, the casting all across the board and Anton Yelchin, you know, like he, what a talented actor that guy was. I mean, just so good. And he actually looks a lot like Jeremy Saulnier. <laughs> yeah, he kind of does as a matter of fact. And, and Jeremy Saulnier, of course, being the writer director of this movie was uh, really involved in the hardcore scene, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you can see by the stickers on the van, you're like, this guy listens to this shit, you know? It was the most accurate depiction of punk culture I've ever seen put on film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Just the way they dress and the fact that all those actors are actually playing the instruments too, I mean... Yeah, that's true. When The Ain't Rights is the name of the band. And those guys, uh, in fact, if you watch the behind the scenes or the the making of little featurette that's on the Blu-ray, it shows the, um, it's like a cast party or, you know, cast and crew party and they played it. They played the set list? Yeah, yeah, they played all four songs that they learned for the movie. Yeah, and then they do the Dead Kennedys. Uh, not oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll get into that. And of course, I, I will have mentioned this in the intro, but we are definitely getting into spoilers for this. This this is a spoiler podcast. Just don't even yeah. listen to this podcast if you're not ready for spoilers. So if you haven't seen this movie, stop this right now. Go watch it because half the fun is just figuring out what it's about as it yeah, unfolds. Just watching it all play out. Really. Much like Blue Ruin. It, it felt a lot yeah. like Blue Ruin in tone also. It did. And I mean, it makes sense, um, which I was actually surprised to find out. I, I thought that Macon Blair and Jeremy Somnia had written Green Room. But then when I was watching it last night, I was like, oh, written directed by. Um, but they're a great do. I mean, they're such a good team together. They really just like good writers, you know, good storytellers. They have a very distinctive style. I think that um, I was reading on IMDb that Sean Porter was the DP on this. He also went on to shoot Green Book. Um, oh wow yeah he's one of my favorite dps working today just beautiful beautiful cinematography in this i mean everything is just bathed in green you know uh, you know the title much like blue ruin was was bathed in blue and almost every shot had had something blue in it there was an object featured prominently in in most of the shots that was blue this movie doesn't quite do that but it does seem to be color corrected a bit in post to give it kind of a greenish hue and certainly the exterior scenes them being in the pacific northwest there's lots of lush greens out in those woods the movie uh indulges in it's beautiful stuff. The The yeah, opening shots of the movie are wonderful. The opening scene, that opening sequence where they wake up in the cornfield and yeah. the van is driven off, that's an actual thing that actually happened to, to people that Jeremy Saulnier knew. Like they, they, oh, really? they're, yeah, their touring hardcore buddies would wake up in cornfields like, oh, I fell asleep behind the wheel. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, the movie you, opens you know, up exactly what happened like when they wake right. up like, the flat, you're like oh they fell asleep at the week because just it's like a big bird's eye view and the uh, little fun fact they actually had to buy two acres of a cornfield in order oh, to really? even shoot that they, oh, had, wow. to, they had, had they actually had to buy that so was they could that season or something yeah because they had to fuck it up so you're yeah, like you're right. not doing that to mine so yeah <laughs> You can buy it from me and do whatever you, you want. Yeah. So they did. But they wanted the, uh, the beginning of the movie to look like, uh, a, a feel like a road trip movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, this is the kind of movie that you're watching. And they wanted to give us all those nice, big, wide shots at the beginning, those vistas. And yeah. then as the movie progressed, everything gets a bit more claustrophobic. Yeah. And until finally we're in that tiny little room with yeah. these people. And most of the movie doesn't happen like that. This is not like a hateful eight situation where 90% of the movie takes place in this tiny little room, though a lot right. of it does take place in that room. There are excursions outside and there's lots yeah. of stuff going on with the Nazis, which talking about the bad guys in this movie. Yeah, they're not they're skinheads. They're 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 racist assholes. They're definitely the bad guys. Yeah. But they're not mindless henchmen. These are they feel like people. Yeah, they really do. That's the th- I remember thinking that last night when I was watching it. I was like, wow, you don't really, like, they don't portray them as, like, foaming at the mouth, like, caricatures of, I, it's a weird thing to say, but they are portrayed as, like, intelligent, organized people. You know, I mean, like, with Patrick Stewart as the villain, I mean, like, he, it's very, it's so methodical, like the way that they go about everything it, it, in frightening ways, you know, like uh, just with the things that they're talking about. And I actually had to watch a lot of the movie uh, with subtitles last night because a lot of times I was like, what are they taught? Like, it's kind of mumbly a little bit. And I mean, I had the AC on too, but man, a few times I was like, I had no idea what the hell they were saying there. When I rewatch movies for this podcast, I tend to use subtitles because yeah. it just, there's, there's tons of stuff in there in movies that I miss, or if they include it in the subtitle, I know that it's important. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. The, yeah, the bad guys in this, while they're bad guys and while they represent a loathsome ideology, they are in fact humans. They, they feel like real people uh, who they've got a real problem. Now, granted, they created this problem, but once the problem happens, the way they go about solving it is it's pragmatic. Yeah, it really it's, is. They they really they realize they've got a problem and these guys they fuck up too, just like the, the quote unquote good guys in the movie. Yeah. They make they make mistakes, they get scared, and even uh you feel a little sympathy almost for the pit bulls who are portrayed as just living yeah. weapons. And then at the very end, that last shot of the pit bull laying down on the arm of its dead master is just like, it's, it's almost heartbreaking. Yeah. It, it, it's sad in a way. Yeah. Because it's like they, the dog, I think it gets kind of shot, right. Or shot at maybe. They do get but, shot at Aaliyah Shawcat's character right before she gets mauled to death you know fires yeah. the shotgun and it may That's or right. may not have, have hit that dog but it it, it ran off remember? yeah it runs off and then they cut back to it like two or maybe twice or something yeah. like, what's going on with this dog you know and then yeah and then it just kind of pays off with this sort of sad <laughs> moment with the guy or with the uh, with its master or whatever yeah. the trainer Let's talk about the cast a little bit. We really haven't gotten into the cast before we, okay. we get too far into the weeds on, on plot stuff. Uh, so we've got uh, the late Anton Yelchin, who I have to say I'm not terribly familiar with his work. I've heard nothing but great stuff about it, but I only know of him as uh, Pat, the bassist of the Ain't Rights in, in this movie, and as uh, Chekhov in the J.J. Abrams Kelvin timeline Star Trek movies. That's really all I know. And, of course, I know about his uh, 
tragic and early passing. But I, I hear he's a wonderful actor. And yeah, everything that I've seen him in, I'm like, man. I mean, that guy just such a loss, you know, mm-hmm. and just such a freak accident way too. You know? Yeah. So we've got we've got uh, Image and Poots as Amber, yep. who yeah. is basically not much more than an extra for most of the movie until until she's not, <laughs> until yeah, she yeah. becomes one of our main characters. Yeah. Uh, we've got Aaliyah Shawcat. Uh, you may remember her as Maybe on Arrested Development, the bassist in the Ain't Rights. We've got a guy named, uh, we've got Joe Cole, who plays Reese. He's the drummer. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with him, but I thought that he and Callum Turner, who played Tiger, the singer of the Ain't Rights, I thought both of those guys were really, really good in this movie. Yeah, they're, they're really, really good. And they look, I mean, it's again, like you, you see them and you're like, yeah, I, I buy that you're in a, uh, you're in a punk band. Like mm-hmm. you, cause you don't look like a Hollywood actor playing bassist man in, you know, no, he, he, he looks like bassist man in hardcore band without a yeah. doubt. I mean, like, yeah. it's just like, wow. Yeah. I, I buy or guitarist. Aaliyah Shawcat was the bassist, but whatever. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then of course we've got the great Sir Patrick Stewart, another Star Trek alum, though from yeah. a different, a different timeline. Yeah. So funny too. I, I've been watching a lot of uh, Next Gen, and then I was like, "Oh, I got to watch Green Room," and I forgot Patrick Stewart was in that. I was like, "Oh my god, Picard!" And he's the leader of the Skinheads. And in this movie, right. the leader of the Skinheads is not like you said earlier. These these guys are not frothing at the mouth. He doesn't have any big bad guy speeches that he gives. He's just a quiet, very calm, very pragmatic uh, leader of men. He, he's leading a movement. Yeah. And he, you can tell he inspires uh, respect amongst his uh, subordinates. Yeah. He, he just kind of carries himself with a very calm, quiet, soft spoken, but firm demeanor, which is yeah. maybe more frightening than someone who. Yeah. And just the scene, and, the scene, I mean, he's, it's like a, it's like a six, seven minute scene and you never even see him. He's on the other side of the wall, you know, and, and he's, he's trying to negotiate with everybody in the green room and to hand over the gun or something like that. And you just hear his voice booming through those walls. It's Yeah. But he's got presence. We don't ever yeah. see him in that scene, yeah. but his, his presence is certainly felt. Yeah. You just feel it from the perspective of, uh, of the guys in the room. It's really just... And then, of course, we've got Macon Blair. It wouldn't be a Saulnier movie without Macon Blair. Always deep, always solid. That guy's great. The more I see of him, the more I I dig him. He, This guy needs to be in every Coen Brothers movie from here on out. He's just got a face. For some reason, I look at him and I can see one of those Roger Deacons right in your face kind of shots. Yeah, yeah. He likes to shoot those singles like right there in the space between where the conversation is happening. Absolutely. He made that great movie on Netflix, uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World anymore. Did he write and direct that? I think he wrote and directed it, yeah. And that was another one. Yeah, another one like this where it starts out one thing and then it just fucking flips itself on its head and turns Mm -hmm. into a completely different thing. So as it turns out, he's a really good writer, a really good director, in addition to what we already knew is just being a very talented uh, Yeah, very, very good actor. He's just so natural. Like I don't know, man. He's he's very talented. He's very unique looking too. So he stands out. The, the skinheads in this are just scary as shit. But they they all feel like uh, human. We've got Eric Edelstein. Edelstein. Sorry if I'm messing your name up, Eric. That's Big Justin, the bouncer. Oh yeah, he's a familiar face. Because then, like the, the only thing I can remember seeing him in was Jurassic World. And then there's Mark Weber, a guy. He plays a guy named Daniel, who later in the movie it looks like he's going to be, you know, he he's a skinhead, but then he flips over. Oh. And he's going to help the band out and he's going to be our savior. And uh, that doesn't (laughs) happen, (laughs) we'll say. 
Yeah. If there's one thing you can count on in a Jeremy Saulnier movie is for what you think is going to happen is probably not going to happen. Yeah, he, he subverts your expectations a lot. I was reading on IMDb that he refers to Murder Party, which I haven't seen yet, Blue Ruin and Green Room as the inept protagonist trilogy. I've heard him call it that, and I've heard him call it the Clusterfuck trilogy. The Clusterfuck trilogy, yeah. Because, I mean, in particular with that character, Daniel, you're like, oh, man, cool. Like, here we go. Like, yeah. And nope, like 30 seconds later, you're like, never mind. <laughs> he even gets the hero shot when he first leads them out and the camera starts at his feet and it pans up and you're looking at him and it's that low angle. Yeah, it's like a hero that shot. It implies so dominance. Yeah, it's the hero yeah. intro shot and just mid-conversation, shotgun Boom. to the face. Yeah, yeah and that's it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that they, the way that it like, it's so like unceremonious, the way that they like knock off main characters, you know, like, you're like, up, oh, he's dead, up, oh, she's dead. You know, like, it's just like, okay. You know, like, this is the kind of movie where, like, uh, when um, it's it's so brutal. Like, the way uh, the drummer, uh, what's the character's name? Um, Reese. Reese. When he escapes out that window, the second he gets out that window, that guy's on him with a knife. Yeah. And you don't even see him being stabbed. Like, it's kind of like this, like, the camera just kind of, like, floats up. And you just see the guy's arm, and it's, like, disgusting sound design. And you're like, I guess he's dead. You know, I mean, like, right. And then, yeah, like, it's just like, we just spent an hour and 10 minutes with that guy. And up, oh, he's dead, you know, or whoever. It's, the one it's that got me was uh, Tiger when he was killed. He was mauled and the pit bull ripped his throat open. Yeah. Uh, so absolutely brutal. And again, yeah, unceremoniously, it just, it just happens. Yeah, it just happens. Like, it, like within... It's as quick as it would probably happen in, in real life. And this is a guy we've been following and kind of rooting for, and he's, he's <laughs> yeah. charismatic and yeah. nope, all like that. Yep. Gone. Yeah, it's, it's, you don't really see that too often, you know, like there would be in mm-hmm. a typical like Hollywood movie, you know, like you can, you, can, you can imagine how it would play out. I'm looking at this on, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for it right now, and apparently this movie lost money. Really? Yeah. It only had a budget of $5 million and it raked in at the box office, if you can use that term, 3.8. Really? Hmm. Did, it have, did it have a wide release? release? It did not have a wide release. No. Yeah, it did not have a wide release. So I remember seeing like trailers for it constantly. However, Rotten Tomatoes, there's an approval rating of 91% based on really? 236 reviews. It's definitely a, a, a critical darling. Metacritic gives it a 79 out of 100 based on 42 critics. Generally favorable reviews. Yeah, I think the uh, it, it should have gotten up. I don't know how you sell this kind of movie, though. Yeah. It, and it's I, it's I not was, really meant for a wide audience. Yeah, I was reading about on IMDb last night after I watched it that uh, Jeremy Sonia wanted to make it because he was like, oh, I got, I think a lot of people liked Blue Ruin and he was like kind of getting fast tracked to get like big budget, bigger budget stuff. And he was like, before I do that, and everyone thinks I'm a like a fraud or something like that, I want to make like one more indie feature. Uh, and this is the movie I want to make because I don't think I'll be allowed to make this ever again. If I get big, I can't go back and make something that's this fucked up. Yeah, his, <laughs> he was afraid he was going to lose touch with his punk rock roots before he yeah. he was able to make a movie like this, I believe. Yeah. So. And I think that sort of bleeds through with Pat, right? Is that his name? Pat? Anton Yelchin's character? Yeah, Pat. Because mm-hmm. um, he kind of talks about like 
sticking close to like the musical roots and like show and stuff like that. So I wonder if maybe some of that was Jeremy Sonia like weaving his feelings of filmmaking into his indie roots while. You're actually right about that. I watched this last night with commentary on, and it's just Jeremy Saulnier by himself, and he mentions that he wanted the movie to feel like the band was very, very analog. Yeah. Like you have to be here at our shows. We have no... It works out two ways, that the, the band had no social media presence. One, because if these guys die in the middle of the woods, no one's going to miss them. No one's going to know where they were. Right. So that adds a little a level to the suspense that wasn't there before. A plot convenience, for sure. Yeah, and of course it makes sense for a hardcore band to think that way. It's like, well, no, yeah. we want our shows to be immediate, and you right. have to be there to, to, and you to appreciate it. it. By looking at them, you're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. And he and Jeremy Saunier wanted the movie to feel as analog as as that ethos that the band was projecting. Yeah, that definitely bleeds through. It's such a, uh, I don't know, man. Like it's. You can still see that sort of like. Did you see um, Hold the Dark on Netflix? Oh yeah, yeah. We're we're talking about that soon. Oh, are you? Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So I won't talk too much about it then. But yeah, like you can still see that very like his movies definitely have like a feel to them. You know, like it's almost like you could watch his movie and be like, oh, this is a Jeremy Saulnier movie. The same way that you could watch, like you could sit down and see a David Fincher movie and be like, oh, this is some like did Fincher do that or David Fincher do this or. Sure. Very like visual style. The one exception to that would be Murder Party. I, I, it doesn't feel like a Jeremy Saulnier movie to me. No. Isn't it only like an hour long too? It's like an hour and ten. It's minutes. like seventy nine minutes, I believe. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I, gotta, I think my roommate has that. I'm gonna have to watch it. Last I checked, it was all, all four of his movies were streaming on Netflix. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Last time I, I checked, I, it's been maybe a month or so. I know he did maybe the first three episodes of the third season of True Detective. But then I think there was like some sort of behind the scenes drama with him and the creator or something like that. And he was like, I fuck this and just left. That wouldn't surprise me. His style feels like it would be right at home on True Detective. Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just pulled that up. He's credited on True Detective season three as director only of two episodes episodes. of season three. That makes total sense. I I can't believe I watched that season and didn't notice that that Jeremy Sonia directed those. I thought thought maybe they had done the same thing that they did with the first season and just let him do all of it. And I was like, oh, (laughs) that's too bad. I've kind of looked around at some of some film critics and what they had to say about Green Room and uh I don't know, man. Some of these guys, I think, just missed it. Lenica Cruz of The Atlantic called it a, quote, tense gore fest. Mm. Uh, it's not a gore fest. There's only a couple of shots that are gory. Yeah. There's like maybe four or five pretty brutal shots. But other than that, like it's it's not like over the top, I wouldn't say. It's presented as being matter of fact and disturbing in the case of oh, when Imogen Poots kills uh, Big Justin. Oh God! I, oh my God! That I actually out loud went. <laughs> yeah, you can feel that one, man. Oh, when when Pat gets his arm mangled, when he pulls his arm back in, Anton Yelchin's performance totally sold it. It was so disturbing to watch our quote unquote hero behaving that way. But shit, who wouldn't? It makes me numb. Like when I, I was like, oh, my, you don't see what they're doing to his arm. You, they're just holding it. And then he pulls it back and it looks like that. You're like, oh, my God. You know, like it's just it, but you know exactly what they did. They were like just hacking at it with knives or whatever. Yeah. 
Oh, oh my God. Yeah, it really just makes your skin crawl. And another uh, another wonderful thing that Jeremy Saulnier does that most other filmmakers wouldn't do. In another filmmaker's hands, the band would have thought, okay, we have to get out of this room. Let's dig through these floorboards. And in right. this movie, they do exactly that. They're like, oh, my God, there's something down here. There's another room. Let's yeah. go. Uh, it's a dead end. Yep. And they just have to turn around and come back. The other like super makes you nauseate the knife in the temple when worm like drag. He has a thing for like knives and heads, I think, because he does something similar in, in Hold the Dark. And it's like, oh, and like, Blue Ruin. Like, and Blue Ruin. Does he really? Yeah, well, yeah. You remember that's how he murdered. That's how making Blair's in the bathroom. That's how he gets his revenge. He stabs that guy in the temple. Oh, my God. I don't remember that. Yeah. I don't remember too much about Blue Run. I do remember I loved it, but... That's actually based on something that Jeremy Saulnier saw in real life. Really? Okay. That makes sense. During the commentary for this, he mentions the knife to the head thing. He said, yeah, that's not going to talk too much about it, but that's based on something I saw in real life. I think it was maybe even at a show. Oof. Yeah. yeah he's like, this is, this is my attempt at kind of exercising one of the things that I think about at night. Uh, the one in Hold the Dark, like I'm thinking about it now and the top of my head hurts. Like, it's like, I can, oh God, there's something about that. It's just like, man, that like pulls on a nerve where you're like, yike, yuck. <laughs> yeah, that's rough stuff for me. But the the worst stuff for me is like neck stuff, neck stuff, yeah, throat neck stuff. stuff just I, I, I'm very squeamish about that. That's uh. <laughs> neck stuff and wrist stuff. Yeah. Every time I get. Ugh. Yeah. So I'd, I'd compare Green Room to something like um, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. Sure. Yeah. It's a yeah. sort of a siege movie. Yeah, it's it's almost like I mean, in a obvious, it's it's a little bit like Panic Room too, you know, like uh, just with more people. They look visually like visually they look uh, a little uh, pretty similar. Very, uh, I don't know, just beautiful cinematography, a lot of atmosphere. Well, speaking about the cinematography a little bit, like I said earlier, the beginning, there's these nice wide shots that we get of that lush Pacific Northwest. There's a, a shining homage at the beginning. I don't know if you caught that, but we got that helicopter shot looking down at the van as it traveled along a highway along the coast in the yeah. same state as the shining as well. Is it really? Both of those were shot in Oregon. And then, of course, everything gets grimier and more, more claustrophobic. As the film yeah. goes on, this is the first movie that Jeremy Saulnier has directed that he himself was not the DP on. Really? He uh, ceded control of that over to... Um, Sean Porter, right? Over to Sean Porter. That's right. Music in the movie, I think, was fantastic because a lot of times you don't even notice that the music is going on. You don't even notice that there is much of a score. It's very minimal. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's those synth-y. long, atonal tones. Yeah. Keyboards. Yeah. Just I love, I absolutely love the, the the sequence towards the beginning when they show up to the place and they start playing right after they play Nazi punks fuck off as their opening fucking song, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when they went into that, I looked at my wife the first time we watched it and I thought, oh my God, what are they doing? She's like, what? Yeah. Like, that's that's Nazi punks fuck off. That's a dead yeah, kidney I song. <laughs> I remember when I first watched it, I was like, I know that song. What the fuck? And then I was like, oh, that makes sense. Because right before that, he's like, I have an idea. And I was like, ah, oh, that's funny. You know? Then on stage, he's kind of scared to do it. And Aaliyah Shawkat's character whispers to him, you play this fucking song or I'm going to tell the crowd that you're a Jew. That you're Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Uh, the music, yeah, by the way, was good. done by uh, Brooke Blair and Will Blair. And I, I haven't looked into this at all, but I'm going to assume that they're related to Macon. Yeah, it would make sense. Yeah. yeah, it would make sense. 
yeah. but yeah, you would. Yeah, after they play uh, Nazi punks, it goes into that, like beautiful slow mo scene of just people dancing, and we're talking about like how uh, how sinister and dark it is. There are moments and which keeps it from being sort of like monotonous to sit through. You know, like oh god, when everything is doom and gloom, like there's mo- moments of levity. It, more so in the beginning, like when you get to know the characters, like the, they even managed to get a funny fart joke in there. Much like Blue Ruin, people watch it the first time and they think, my God, what a grimy, almost depressing movie this is. But then on the second watch, you start noticing, oh, there's some, there's humor in here. There's, yeah, there's, there's it's yeah. dark humor to be sure, but it's there. The whole thing with Prince and their yeah. Desert Island bands, that was That's wonderful. Cool. They they have the the scene where they're being interviewed at the beginning by the, by the punk rock kid with the mohawk. For his zine and he asks what their desert island bands are and it's all the same safe answers it's bad brains minor threat black flag crow mags gorilla biscuits and so on and all that stuff's great but of course that's the safe answer and of course later way later in the movie when it looks like they're about to die and they just say fuck it everybody grab something that you can fight with and let's just make a run for it Aaliyah shawcat says simon and garfunkel out of nowhere that's that's my that's my desert island music and the guy's yeah. like, yeah, mine's Prince. And then you never find out what um, Anton Yeltsin's character, he's like hesitant to say what his is. And then he, at the very, the last shot, he's like, I know what my Desert Island band is. And she's, you know. Yeah, it's not important. Who cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Tell somebody who gives a shit. Here's the credits. Yeah, I love how this movie, it, when you watch it the second time, you realize like when the band first pulls in and you get the first shot of the compound, the people in the background turn into major players later. There's, there's Imogen Poots' character talking to the house band, Cowcatcher. Uh, you know, like a lot of those guys are just kind of standing around in the background, milling yeah. around, and they, they eventually become major players in the movie. Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of good setup and payoff. It's just that the payoffs are always sort of subvert. You're just kind of like, why? Like, because it will happen. And then you're like, okay, now it's a movie. And then like the rug is pulled out from under you again, you know, like with the shotgun under the bar. I think that shot is set up. It's like a POV from Tiger, like when he's getting his throat ripped out and then he's just like looks and sees the shotgun. And then that's how you know it's there. You know, it's not done in like a typical way. You know, another uh, element of realism in the movie was when Big Justin is getting choked out by Reese. I love that Reese knows jujitsu, by the way, and he puts the guy in the arm bar. I think there's a little bit of setup at the very beginning. They refer to him as jujitsu or something or MMA. When the guy that, promises the, the radio college radio guy that promises them the gig, but then they have to play it like a shitty Mexican restaurant. And he get he's like, it, they each get like six bucks from the door, you know? And he's like, and he slams them up against the wall. And I think Tiger's like easy jujitsu or something like that. And you're like, Oh, and then when he puts Justin in the headlock later, you know why, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Oh, he knows jujitsu somehow. He just took jujitsu classes, I guess. Yeah, the guy knew it because why not? Yeah. I mean, and it was important that somebody there knew had had some kind of skill that would help them survive because they're really inept. Not that yeah. I would be any better in this situation, but these are people you can tell they're just kind of making it up as they go along. They yeah. they're in there with Justin. They have Justin as their captive for a while before they realize we should check this guy's pockets. Yeah. They just, yeah. it just totally slips their minds. Like, oh, empty your pockets, by the way. And it, it's so real, like the way that they all, uh, mm-hmm. like with Reese's character, like pretty badass for a little bit. And then he's finally just like, fuck that. He's like, I'm running. He's like, what are we doing? Just the way that they all react to the situation. It's just very real. Like they're passing the gun around because none of them want to 
hold the gun, you know, and shit. It adds a level of tension that you're like, yeah, that feels real, you know. Like it feels like something someone might react. To. Going back to Reese and the level of realism in it, it's when he puts Justin in the chokehold right before Imogen Poots finishes Justin off, he chokes him out. He chokes him into unconsciousness. And then once he's unconscious, he kind of lets him go and he's panicking. He's just laying there with this big fat guy on top of him. And Justin wakes up because in most movies, when you get choked out or, you know, when you're rendered unconscious, okay, you're just done for the rest of the scene. That's not how things are in real life at all. If you've watched any MMA or if you've ever seen a street fight where someone got choked out, you're not out for 30 minutes. You come to relatively quickly. Sure. Yeah. And that's what happens in this movie. And Reese puts him right back in that chokehold. And you, you see it on his face. I noticed it on the second viewing. Reese realizes I have to strangle this guy to death now. Yeah. Yeah. He starts, he's, he's trying to kill Justin. And I'm not sure if what he did killed Justin or, I mean, certainly Emi, uh, Emily, I believe her name is, Imogen Poots is, or Amber, rather. Amber guts the guy. It's just so disgusting. I mean, that prosthetic. Yeah, the layers of fat and stuff—it's like, oh my god! It looked very real. It was just uh, so foul. (laughs) It really is just so foul. When they realize, okay, we have to kill this guy. There's a look on Reese's face as he's strangling Justin. That's kind of sad. Yeah, like he's like, I don't, I don't want to be doing this at all. Yeah, yeah. But if I don't kill this guy, he's gonna kill us. Yeah, yeah. Which I think any of us would do. There's nothing about the movie that seems far-fetched because, yeah, I don't know, just the the way that they go about, like, in a militaristic-type fashion of, like, all right, we got to shut the power down, and then we got to get these guys to stab each other to mask up for the stabbing, and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just all, like, so... Like, everything that they're doing makes sense, you know, within that situation that they're in. The way that they're acting, it really just puts you in a gross mood. You know, like it's a it's a harrowing experience watching. This is the first Jeremy Saulnier film I, I, I watched and I immediately fell in love with it. I was like, that's not something I want to watch all the time. Yeah. That was so well done. And there were so many left turns and curveballs in it. I couldn't see any of this stuff coming. That's the best. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's what I look for, man. Like, it's like, I don't want to, that's why I love Tarantino so much. It's like, you never know where his movies are going. Like you have an idea, you know, you're like, okay, it'll probably end in a big violent shootout. But, I mean, that's why you go to see his movies, but yeah, there, there might be a Mexican standoff. Yeah. There's yeah. at one point, you know, it'll be a good time. And that's, I mean, I wouldn't say that green room is a good time, but no, you don't see the stuff coming and yet it all makes total sense because usually you, people tend to, that's how people appreciate movies. They put themselves in the shoes of the protagonist or the, the characters in the film. And you think, yeah, these guys are inept, but man, I would be too. Right. There's, there's, I don't know if I wouldn't, I wouldn't think to empty that guy's pockets until later, probably. Right. But now after watching this movie. But I, I got the feeling that like the main character in, in Blue Ruin, they got that idea because, oh, in the movies, they make people dump out their pockets. It's like, oh, we better do that too. It's like they got that like just through pop culture osmosis. Like, oh, yeah, while we have you, dump your pockets. 
And then he still manages to break the phone. And then the power gets shut off. And the meticulous nature of the set design was just wonderful. So there's the other band playing. I think it was, I forget the name of that other band. It was Cowcatcher was the house band that Worm was a member of. And then we had the Eight Rights. But when they cut the, right before they cut the power, there's that shot with Macon Blair and Patrick Stewart. And they walk through the bar while the band is playing in the background. And they go and talk to the bartender for a moment. And they've got this whole set with all these extras, these, these punk rock and metal kids in the crowd. You got the band playing. All that stuff is set up. And then the camera just breezes right past it. They don't yeah. dwell on it. Another movie would have lingered on it. Like, okay, we went through all this trouble to set this shit up. Let's let's show people. Yeah. Nope. It's just we're walking through it. And it's just in the background. And it, it just adds up to the realism. Like, this could happen. Yeah, there's a lot of movement, too, in the movie. Like, they really... I mean, there that's so much of it. Ta- I've, so much of it takes place in that in the green room, but the way I mean, they really managed to like shoot it in such a way that gives it personality. And like you said, like the set dressing and the production design, really, it's all those stickers. And I mean, it looks like it really looks like it's been there for. It looks lived in. It mm-hmm. looks lived in, and it's it's just great. And again, they don't even go into the whole like underneath underneath the green room itself was oh these guys are stealing heroin they're moving a lot of weight we don't even go into that well they, it kind of pays off because that's how they get worm to leave right they give him all right like, he gives them that heroin and then yeah but then, i think he says that he got that from some other guy so it might not even be the hair i don't know yeah i think they they wanted to get rid of Cowcatcher as the the opening band he, he yeah. mentioned to uh to make him blair's character gabe it's like um here give him this give him this it's too bad about that dope that's going around that's like way too strong and, and killing people and then you realize at the end we get that shot of worm eating cereal and over here in the living room and over here on the lazy boy is his buddy who's dead just right. od'd needle yeah. in his arm and didn't they they gave it to them so that they would just lay low and just get fucked up for i got the impression the second time i watched it that patrick stewart's character uh, did that on purpose he he one of those guys dead yeah that's yeah yeah he flat out said like you know what we need to look into getting a new house band too that's right he does say that yeah yeah somebody called it uh saunier called the movie full frontal gore which <laughs> yeah i'd agree with that it's, it's just one of the most like brutal movies i've seen you know like mm-hmm. It really is unforgiving and unrelenting, and it's just an awesome ride, and I, I I love it. It's I bought a copy of it the the moment I saw it. It's like I've yeah. I've got to I've got to own this one. It's yeah. great. It's a good one, man. It's something that if I had made, I'd, I'd definitely be proud of. You know. How do you feel about it, man? Are we good here? Yeah, I think uh, I think if you haven't seen it and you dig very dark sort of uh, high tension thrillers then uh this is the movie for you you got just got to be in the mood to watch it for sure yeah it's it's relatively short just a little over an hour and a half long so it's not you're not committing yourself to three hours of agony yeah i wouldn't call it agony either it's it's definitely white knuckle stuff though yeah it's white knuckle for sure it's not a slog or agonizing to sit through i i it's a great movie yeah i I think this may be this may be my favorite jeremy saunier movie yeah blue ruin's great too uh, it's a good companion piece to this because they're very they're very similar in tone. Yeah, they definitely feel like siblings. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, if you're a fan of Blue Ruin, check out Green Room. You'll you'll certainly appreciate it. Yeah. Ted, I appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Always a pleasure talking to you. We'll do it again sometime. I can't wait. All right, brother. Take care. Take care, man. And that's that. Good talk, right? 
Ted's always fun to talk movies with. We've been doing that since, shit, I don't know, 2012. As I mentioned earlier, he'll be hosting his own podcast, which launches soon, called Needs to be Seen. That's seen like a movie scene. And uh, you can follow him on Instagram at DinoBear2086. That's D-I-N-O-B-E-A-R-2086. And his podcast, you can follow that on Instagram at Needs to be Seen, all one word. Speaking of Instagram, why don't you go ahead and give us a follow over there as well? Uh, you can find us there at filmography underscore club underscore podcast. We'd appreciate a rating and maybe a review if you're feeling wordy. We're located on all of the usual podcasting platforms and a quick rating and or review would certainly make our day. I'd like to thank my guest, Ted Ringeisen. And as usual, I want to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and Michael Leeds. Filmography Club is produced right here in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee by the always hardworking folks at We Own This Town. Thank you for listening. I'm Jason. This is Filmography Club. Until next time. <laughs>